It's Wednesday, January 6th. You're listening to the Tech Breakfast Podcast, the show that brings you delicious tech news headlines and all the gossipy hot takes you can handle with Tyler Gates, Russ Cantwell, and Aaron Bewley. How's it going, fellas? What up? It's slow today. I feel like it's darker outside. I'm stretchy as my middle You're stretching real slow, too. It's like <laughs> slow-mo stretching. I feel like I shared that on a show one time. My my middle son's, uh, his protest against doing things he didn't want to do for like years, two years maybe, was, I'm too stretchy. Yes. And I don't know exactly where he picked it up, but it was awesome and so frustrating at the same I'm time. I'm using that. I, mean, I, I use it all the time. It's a keeper, man. I'm it's, rolling I'm with that stretchy. one. Uh, it's stretchy. I'd love to help listening. you with those two sacks. <laughs> but. I'm too stretchy. Um, yeah, I couldn't hit that deadline, boss. Was a little too stretchy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right. Uh, we have a guest on today, Mr. Curtis Bunker, joining us from Alaska. Now, this is actually oh, not his first show. time on the show. Uh, we had a conversation previously, just a one-off, you know, I think it was about an hour long chat that we had that we ended up both just deciding, hey, we should just publish this to the podcast, even though it was just us talking. Um, so it's actually technically his second time on the show, but now this time is more, you know, news, things like that. So before we get into that, that episode, you totally should because it was excellent. Um, yeah. Curtis had a lot of really interesting things to say. Yeah. Well, Gosh, welcome, Curtis. Thank you guys for having me. Awesome, man. We're excited. Um, you do so much for the show, sending us links and notes and, and cracking into new ideas and all kinds of stuff. So it's a pleasure having you on before we get there. Yeah, it's symbiotic. Yeah, man. I think, uh, I think, well, I think we benefit more from you quite honestly. I don't know how symbiotic <laughs> it is. Yeah, go, ahead and, go ahead and plus one on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I think Russ has some, uh, today in tech history news for us. I do. Hit us, I Russ. got some stuff. Okay. January 5th, 2010, what happened? Who wants to guess? It's related to the Nexus 1. Oh, crap. Never mind. Nexus 1 released <laughs> January 5th, 2010. <laughs> Didn't bury so, that lead. <laughs> so, this, so do you guys know what the Nexus 1 is? Eh? Uh, is it like an Android tablet the, thing? That was the first okay. native. Did not Google expect Aaron device, to right? know, yeah. and he didn't. I, I knew <laughs> it was an Android. Android. Is it an Android thing? It is an Android thing. Okay. It is the first. It's not the first Android phone, but it was the first Android phone that was like the Google edition the of Google Android. edition. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's right. So the very Aaron first talked over formal me about Google tablets. phone tablets uh no it was a friend of mine actually had the the nexus one and it was the first uh android phone i had actually seen in person was was that one but i, I feel I like didn't want that one i wanted the droid i think oh. i i may uh, have were you had saying you nexus knew it was one. a smartphone i did yeah no no i knew it was the first google device um uh, because i followed that pretty closely i can't remember now if i actually had it i'm gonna guess not because i have a pretty bad habit of never letting go of phones which is a bad habit there's really no reason that they were good until they went bad sitting in a drawer most of them literally don't work now but i think the i think the phone i got if i had it the phone i got right after it was the moto x uh which was when google's phone was wait a minute by the motorola labs you went from the nexus one to the moto x is that what you said 
I want to say that was the jump. It was, it was a few it's years. Like 15 years in no. between those two phones <laughs> releasing. That far apart, were they? No well, way. No, obviously. <laughs> the Moto X was like three years later. 15 years hasn't happened. Like it was that. four years later. Curtis, um, yeah. No, that sounds like my upgrade cycle. Curtis, are you Android <laughs> or iPhone? Oh, I'm iPhone, man. I, I'm just listening. To the, I had a friend that grabbed the Nexus one, and, and it was... It reminded me of that first Dell. God, what was that thing called? It must have been like six inches wide and ten inches tall, and the phablet type of thing that couldn't even barely fit in your back pocket. <laughs> That's what the Nexus reminded me of. But it was so little. Yeah, I can't remember the name of that. It was so uh, small. No, I didn't have that one. I, I, I have had Nexus devices. I think I hung in the rafters and waited that one out. I've had, I've had a bunch of them in. Yeah. I've had. Uh, oh, the Vin. I've had multiple Nexus and multiple, multiple Pixels. Uh, I like the, I actually, uh, the stock I Android feel. There's more. I think today, I'm gonna go though. back to it. My my camera yeah. is. I it got ruined. I think I told that story too. I caught the corner, and so mm-hmm. the rear facing camera, just right on top of the camera lens, got shattered in my pocket, and it was fine for a while. And now just enough dust and debris has collected that my pictures look like they're taken on a potato, which is pretty frustrating. <laughs> not good. I do that especially, a lot. Pictures. Especially in 2021. No, yeah, I ruined so, it. So I either need to fix it, which is high on my list of things to try, uh, or or get a new phone. And I'm I'm leaning towards option B. And I'm well. Pixel. News for you is there could be like a Pixel Five Pro being released, uh, like that, this. That's so usually my problem is just waiting. <laughs> um, There's so always another one. Also, who knows who Richard Stallman is? I'm hoping a lot of people on this don't know that name. Man, I'm really nerdy. Dang it. What? I am. I'm super nerdy. Okay, Richard so Richard Stallman. Stallman. So who knows what Linux is? Yes. Nope. Okay. So he had something to do with Linux. Well, actually, he did he stand on it. RMS. So Linux is what we call the Linux operating system, even though at the end of the day, Linux is actually just the kernel. That's all it is. And if you were to ask Richard Stallman what you call Linux, and if you were to say Linux at the time, he would be very upset with you. He would tell you that it is called <laughs> GNU slash Linux. He is the original person who started working on the GNU operating system, which is the traditional operating environment that you work in inside of Linux that is powered by the Linux kernel, which does the hardware translation. So Richard Stallman is a very, very big person in the GNU slash Linux community. Uh, he's also maybe the most opinionated person in the GNU slash Linux community, but he is a very big deal inside of it. So his anyway, interviews are great. Yeah. Oh my God. They're, they're classic. They're like, I don't know, mm-hmm. Bill Belichick type <laughs> interviews that are wonderful from the NFL perspective. Uh, he began working on the GNU operating system on January 5th, 1984. Mm. So that's a good one. Wow. There you go. And then I got a big one for okay. this podcast. U.S. President Richard Nixon orders the development of a space shuttle program in January 1972. So, wow. Good stuff. Good stuff. January 5th. January 4th was a big day. January 5th is a big day. So, uh, those were all obviously from yesterday, but I wanted them to be noted because the, uh, all, all of them were just so big in things we do today. Smartphones. Linux in general, I mean, the whole GNU side with all of the interfaces that we use and then the space shuttle program obviously are big. So whenever yeah. this day in tech history cannot be updating soon enough for us to report on the day, you're getting the day before. That's what you get. <laughs> it's <Okay>. happening. <laughs> so there was a thing on Twitter yesterday. This, this tweet actually was trending, which was kind of wild. Not only was it viral, but it was, it was trending. And it was, I can't remember who it was, but it was somebody saying, I don't know who needs to hear this. 
but you do not need to keep your iPhone box. That apparently is something that iPhone users do. Is that a thing in Android? I don't know how y'all. No. How y'all. I, I don't know if the community does it. it. For a long time, I kept boxes for almost all electronics uh, for resale phones. Obviously, not something I sold. So I started dumping those a long time ago, but I don't particularly care to have that clutter anymore. So I don't. I do keep it. my graphics card boxes because sometimes I sell those or I give them to mm. people and I have to ship them. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, I do not know. My, my Pixel 5 box is very much so long gone. No idea okay. where that is at this point. Yeah, I think there's something about the... I don't Out know what it is. sheer laziness, I still have my Stadia box right here at my feet. It is <laughs> quite it empty. Is. Maybe that's it, just sheer laziness. <laughs> no, but with like your phone's IMEI number and all this kind of stuff on it, I don't know. Something about it just feels like you got to keep it, but... Anyway, yeah, you don't. It's because it's sexy. It's some of the best packaging in the industry. I mean, I have <laughs> oh, a newfound stop. appreciation there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are we talking about Apple packaging now? I see. Oh, uh, man. No, I actually, think, that is like, a big thing. Like, they, it, I don't remember if Apple was, I, I feel like they really did spearhead a bit of that, but the, the packaging industry in general started to shift. Possibly because of Apple. Actually, I don't know the history here. Um, but yeah, like nice premium packaging became a thing around five years ago, right? Like it, where the clean, that unboxing experience went from being like, oh, look, it's rotten cardboard to like, ooh, that's a nice box with a nice insert. And it's easy and clean and all things that don't really matter compared to the quality of your phone. But experience yeah. matter that must be it i ended up doing that with my uh with the dell precision laptop just because it was so just like crisp and it was nice it was nice okay so nice. uh curtis i think you came to uh to share some thoughts with us man um hit us with what you got what are you working on what are you thinking about what's got you interested yeah so so the reason i follow a lot of the tech news um with the with the kind of i don't know focus that i do is it's uh, it's hard to put together a storyline that predicts a lot of the technological events that brings us towards you know the end of the century, right? So our flagship product and the reason we do the majority, when I say we, I sit down a lot with my kids and I watch a lot of um, AI education. It's the reason we're collaborating with After School to create you know child-focused AI-driven um, animation scripts to get kids more involved in learning is is uh so there's so much there's so much uh speculation out there uh you know there's a huge uh chasm between education and what i would call commercial um maybe commercial focus around around ai there's there's a whole different model of how you spin and how you talk about the different things that you're doing and so so really we we spend a lot of time and i, I discussed a lot with my kids because the ideas around Gaia Seed come from from them and their friends and the time I spend in classrooms and 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 in, in front of a lot of neurodiverse minds. A lot of the ideas behind Gaia Seed, you know, come from the roots of 2020 to 2050 in our in our story. It's called the fall of humanity. <clears throat> and essentially, the existential threat that comes forward that humanity has to deal with is social media. And not in the form that we expect. It's a copy of the artificial general intelligence that we create. So we create an AGI. If you'll read a lot of AI modes, they have things like benevolent dictator and protector God. And the, those are different modes that come beyond a gateway mode, beyond when you talk to AI and say, help me make a decision. And so these, these, uh, 
These predictions are difficult because people don't like to talk about a lot of future things. Um, and the more that you stray away from dystopian ideas, <laughs> too much change. It's, it's the future is scary because it's not the same as it is right now. Yeah, and we're mapping the implications of that. We have like a little folder that we've set up on Dropbox that we share with a bunch of MIT scientists and script writers and things like that. So I found the challenge myself in writing those scripts and doing all the news research um, in my mind, because my mind's so active around that topic. When a new article comes out, I read it in the context of the future 20 years out. And so it's hard for me sometimes and probably doesn't help a lot with some of the mental health concerns, you know, around this time period and what everybody's, you know, experiencing right now. But specifically for me, you know, I spend hours a day kind of readdressing the one part of the story that can morph throughout the volumes. We have seven volumes for the graphic novel, the board game, and the JRPG that all follow each other and build on the stories. And we're barely through volume one. And when you look at how much has changed in the last year, we started writing about a year and a half ago. I started gathering their ideas. Um, we thought that the first three or four topics that we'd be addressing in volume one as major uh, technological influencers, <laughs> we thought they'd be like fanciful still. We thought we'd be talking to people about the tech cold war. And we thought we'd be talking to people about a brain computer interface. <laughs> we thought we'd be talking yeah. to people about, you know, neurological upload and, and tertiary limbic intelligence online and what social media is doing. So everything's progressed so damn fast. As I pick these articles up, I kind of integrate them in. So my focus prior to kind of taking on Gaia's seed and taking on writing was around IT architecture automation. And then I kind of got nudged into the cyber security and incident response field. And so that one is kind of near and dear. So the stuff that's been coming out the last couple of weeks around the hack, um, you know, can't talk a lot about things from the past, but I guided, did direct incident response and kind of worked with the three letter agencies uh, here and there and got to see with, uh, <laughs> my own experience, what response looks like for smaller agencies, smaller public sector agencies. And that is kind of where, when I approach each major topic, when I'm kind of forwarding things on to you guys, a lot of it's driven out of a fear mindset. That's a lot of what I'm battling with right now, starting a new company, kind of rebuilding who I am after a pretty significant, um, just, fall on my knees, right? And so I'm trying to garner all that stuff and and uh, and bring the non-dystopian elements forward for like a nine to 13 audience. So everything I'm talking to you guys of nine to 13 plus, when I think about the type of skill sets and mentality and understanding, our generation from about that nine to 13 range is gonna, is gonna need um, in the next decade as a lot changes with automation underneath almost any career a child would choose. You know, a lot of the statistics that are coming out from, you know, the national agencies around automation and things like that are basically giving us the indication that we won't even know how to label the jobs, half, half or more of the jobs that are created in the next decade. We, won't even, we don't even have names for it yet. And so in my mind, again, it's scarcity and fear mindset based as I'm dealing with where I'm at. But when I read those things, I think of the younger generation, how everything is changing underneath them how quickly um, models like UBI and some type of basic income are being discussed to support a population that's transitioning potentially 
away from the way that we know employment now. And so a lot of what I'm trying to push in my research, those things is lifelong learning, getting kids to understand how to learn, not facts to learn. We have ways of looking that stuff up now, but we're, we're at a precipice where I believe we should be considering teaching our children in a vastly different way and looking to, I'm not going to say the East, but looking to other countries that are using AI as a leapfrog model, right? The countries that didn't stand up, you know, phone lines, didn't have to worry about cell infrastructure swaps. They were able to leapfrog, you know, slightly. We're now approaching maybe one of the largest leapfrogs in history, and we're watching the, the educational models adapt very quickly for other countries and them being more honest and open about, hey, we know these changes are coming. We're not going to hide them underneath the carpet in a lot of cases, right? They're not mass scale talking about automation and how much it, it, uh, it changes the landscape, but they are very much open. Open discussion is happening in a lot of uh, think tanks. And uh, it's exciting to me that, that, you know, in this change, if we can focus some skills around education and computational social science, that's the other thing I try to push a lot is we have a very short window in my mind to embed skill sets and personalities into the top public sector, uh, you know, let's, let's kind of divide it by three, the higher educational, the, the public sector level and the commercial, they kind of make the Trinity. And if we can put this, this focus within those agencies in this decade around computational social science and understanding the ethics of everything we're doing as we even just model data, right? Um, I think that's a really important, um, I think it's a really important agenda for a lot of people to be pushing. And you see it a lot in our AI community. Where's the ethics? Is that, Where's the CSS? Is that the, like the summarized definition of computational social science? Is it, is it a computational model for ethics? Because or, or, I'm, I'm not actually wow. that familiar with that whole branch of science. What, what is it? I think it's the inverse of that. Yeah, right? so, so you, tend to, yeah, you tend to have the end ethics afterwards. Um, a lot of the courses that I take when you just jump on kind of the micro degree sites or the, the um, oh, next gen education, right? I'm not here for a four year degree. I'm not here for a college sign up. I'm here for specific skill attainment. So in addition to reading articles all day long, guys, I attend a lot of courses that like, um, or did in the past and now I've kind of tapered back. I think I'm just enrolled in one at UC Davis, but like the UA, I'm sorry, I'm for university group is University of Alaska, the University of California system bonds all their campuses together for AI education. So when you pop in via like Coursera, you're working across all the different campuses in a different focus. So to your question around CSS, that course has exploded with people in, enrolling. CSS focuses um, a lot of its different areas in, uh, in various different disciplines within maybe a data science umbrella and the ethics kind of come afterwards right there it's not that it's an afterthought it's laying a foundation and then applying you know these are important decisions how do we ethically approach a lot of these it's a rapidly growing field yeah that's cool i, I yeah I so so back back to the original question you know like what what gets me into all these articles we spend a lot of time in front of the whiteboard and we're really, what we're struggling with right now is how do you define artificial general inter intelligence in the early modes? Like who accidentally lights up, you know, the first AGI or have we already, has it already escaped, you know, Google's data center, you know, the famous articles around 
creating its own languages and talking to itself and pulling the plug and all those type of things with open AI. Like when does that, um, that event happen? And then how does the world adapt? I'm trying to create a very non-dystopian world for this younger audience. And rather than nukes flying everywhere between 2020 and 2050, right? The, the modern approach that we're taking is there's you know a three-day event. That's my brother works for FEMA, so brother-in-law. And so it's pretty well known within that community. You got about three days to help people do nasty things when core infrastructure is taken out from, you know, from the scene. And so a lot of what we focused on in the book, it's been interesting watching the war games and you know, hearing all that kind of stuff, but we have stayed completely away from that because that was the biggest fear of children. When you sit in the room and we actually talk about these things. So this, this all spawned from one kid saying, hey, I think a robot's going to take my dad's job two years ago when I was doing a lot of reading to the kids in the classroom. And we talked about it a lot. And these kids were already being introduced to a lot of data science topics. But they were incredibly dystopian. Yeah. How did you decide on the age group, the 9 to 13 range? How did, how did that come to be? So, so as I went between classrooms, my kids are – uh, on the spectrum. Uh, my middle has different sensory processing disorders, but you know, I have a lot of uh, developmental disabilities that I, I work with and work around and work through with my, with my kiddos. And as I started visiting their classroom, the interest started happening right around nine and 10. As I kind of, you know, I go in and read books and go in and volunteer and do a lot of things like that. And as I started approaching some of those ideas, the concepts below nine of a robot just weren't scary. There, there weren't concerned. Why did Gaia come into all this? This entire book is a mashup or a graphic novel. This entire transmedia story is a mashup of children's concepts. And basically, when I asked, okay, well, you know, is the AI bad? It became very clear very quickly that they wanted the AI to be a woman. They wanted the AI to be copied. That was the bad guy, Right. Rule number one in all AI models is never allow the AGI to be copied. They will go in direct conflict with each other. It's pretty much rule number one. There can only be one. And so they wanted the copy aspect in order to, uh, in order to uh, you know, the Westworld 3 kind of approach. And then the third thing was beyond 10, they, you know, again, their, their focus was just too dystopian. And everything wasn't about a Roomba and giggling. It was about, you know, Flippy taking you know, their dad's job or something like that. So that amplified a lot of people, you know, use the 10 weeks and uh, 10 years and 10 weeks kind of, you know, uh, idea around what happened in 2020, the, the corporate push, it's okay to talk about these things. Now, a lot of it was like the reverse of what we see with the hype cycle and Gartner and all that, right? We saw things that had been maybe ready for some type of rollout publicly that hadn't been exposed to the public yet because it's not dystopian. It's just when you talk about a national identity system, when you start talking about things like, okay, well, here's what other countries have been doing and what we need to do. And that's where it's exciting for me, guys. Every time something comes up around national identity or, or, or anything that would affect the outcome of the human race significantly moving forward, we are stuck in a loop right now where we're finishing uh, with artists. It takes a long time for the graphic artists to finish the product after the scripts are done. And so we have this wait loop period where, candidly, to kind of loop back to the original comment, we are constantly reshuffling the ideas in how soon we could introduce them. Like we were nowhere near 
the discussion of a tech cold war and the idea of a three-day you know, blackout through massive cybersecurity. That's what woke the world up, by the way. That's what got everybody together to develop their own AGI versus independence in the story. But we're trying to not... The last thing I want to do is say, yeah, by 2030, we're going to have neural uplink. Well, that's probably not even close to possible. But things are shifting around so much in how people, and it's not just the Hollywood, you know, AI kind of focus. It's scientific breakthroughs and people kind of readjusting their speculations around when things will happen. So, so that's why these topics, I don't know, become so important. And really, sometimes it's good because it removes me from the median impact. I feel ashamed. I'm like, ah. That's going to affect humans pretty badly right now, but I'm writing about 30 years from now, so I'll just go ahead and shrug that off. You know, that's a small bump. So that's interesting. Yeah. A lot of what you're saying reminds me of um, what uh, the the show Black Mirror, what the writers there were saying. They were going to come out with a. Sixth. I watched one episode, Aaron. That yeah. show was so dark. I watched one episode. It's funny you bring that up. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, but that's no, so important. Fine. I. I didn't want to be jaded by it. When I started doing a lot of my AI research and putting together this research paper to send out to, to writers, um, you know, I needed about a thousand hours of research to bring a tech writer up to speed. And so as I was seeking a creative and tech writer, you know, on that list of things to watch if they don't understand certain concepts, you know, was Black Mirror, even though I'd never seen them. I knew what they were about, but they were so dark and they yeah. were so twisted in the way that they felt real. I was like, I can't bring that into, I can't bring that into my storyline, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The, the first episode from the first series is pretty, it's pretty dark. Um, they, they're all just completely different stories with different characters. They all have different feels, etc. Um, but they were coming out, they've done five series. Um, some of the series are only like three episodes. Some of them are five or six episodes, something like that. And yep. they delayed the sixth series saying that real life was too close to what they had been writing, which is what I'm hearing a lot Absolutely. of what you were saying, right? So that, that made my decision account. not to research further. Yeah. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, okay, I got to make the plunge. I've already written most of the story. Now it's time to bring in the darkest elements. Like if Terminator is even close to how bad things are, yeah, you know. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to eventually watch them. But when I saw that, it was... You know, we live in reality and anybody who likes to hype it, we live in a weird reality where we're injecting all this early. Some of us live in reality. Yeah, yeah. Let's just yeah, be yeah. Let's, yeah. let's not group us all together. <laughs> Some people are flat earthers. <laughs> we'll just say that. That's very true. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Very just kidding. true. It's a, it's so, yeah. Never mind. Mm-hmm. Sorry, mm-hmm. I fell flat. I'm adjusting in my chair here nervously. Okay, uh, no. <laughs> and then also the other thing on the Black Mirror side of it, um, in May of last year, also relating to what you're saying, they questioned, the writers questioned whether the public mood would even suit having a sixth season, right? And whether or not they should work yeah. on a yeah. shift to comedy. It's too dark. Because it's just too yeah. much. Like what they had been doing is now reality. Let's just go some other direction. Let's do comedy. They, I mean, they could yeah. have tried just some positive episodes like here's here's good things instead of how technology <laughs> is going to completely send you into a black hole even if you don't think it's a black hole it sucks take one step out you're looking in and it's terrible i've been told i need <laughs> to watch it multiple times and I, I just i haven't oh, uh, i enjoy it. it sounds like i'm not going to uh, because it's, it's not depressing. it's probably you not know, a good for your, your time health. yeah yeah i'd spend your time on semantic scholar the best thing i can give for advice if you're doing like I'm doing two to four hours of research a day on where humanity goes in some cases, get on Semantic Scholar, look up your favorite thing 
that you think should progress in the world. Alzheimer's, whatever's going on in the world, medical, a lot of it's medical, but a lot of it is also very you know, deep social and sociological issues. So just get on Semantic Scholar, type in the words artificial intelligence in your favorite topic and lose yourself in one sentence subscri- subscriptions, one sentence descriptions, and then dig into the article if you want. It's, it's amazing how it can just shrink the whole thing down into one sentence and go, this is what MIT produced on this topic. That That's will bring awesome. your sense that AI to, is doing good. I'm searching Aaron Bewley and Semantic Scholar. <laughs> Please don't. No, but <laughs> Russ, these, so, so, blended isolation. Hmm. Is it, well, two other things real quick on Black Mirror. Um, I heard Michael Dell say in an interview once he mentioned uh, that he watched Black Mirror just to know what to make sure not to build. <laughs> it's oh man to go wrong and then i can remember the uh, the metalhead episode came out uh, that wouldn't mean anything to you you haven't seen it yet but the boston dynamics robot dog that they created was released shortly yeah. after the metalhead episode was released from uh, from black mirror go watch yeah, at least that promising episode. it's it's a it's a it's a murderous boston dynamics robot dog it's oh, cool. It's Let crazy. me yeah. go check that out. <laughs> and if you had watched that, guys, like two or three years ago, and then you pick up next, you know, the, the, the most recent AI show that I try to keep up with them, see what they're bold enough and what they're willing to say. I don't want to look like the jerk that predicts a singularity in 2035, right? <laughs> so next, next literally uses that same robot dog to choke a, you know, a disabled person to death. And then, you know, a week later, you see Hyundai selling or buying into the intellectual property and you look at all the markets that they're in and where this robotics will now be, you know, applicable. And so again, like when your brain is sitting, looking 20 to 50 years out, as you look at stuff, you just automatically look at it and go dot, 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 you link all these things together. You know, Hyundai is very famous in the construction market. I've been pushing hard for our Alaskan senators to diversify oil assets and start rare earth mineral responsible rare earth mineral discovery, right? Like we don't need to worry about the Bristol Bay project and all the, you know, the traditional mining. We're talking complete, like what Russia's doing in a lot of the, the Northern areas, completely autonomous, right? Everybody with skills that, you know, flew drones and like RC, time to skill up, you know? You're basically taking your mining skills, sitting in a chair and operating robots with these type of technologies, right? So we potentially are gonna look back in 10 years and say, Boston Dynamics was the first time that we were able to put intelligent enough, not general intelligence, but narrow artificial intelligence into a mining operation at a scale where humans, it's not dangerous to the earth. Well, the danger to the earth is severely minimized, like in lithium mines, and the danger to humans, obviously, and we haven't displaced all these workers. We've just said, hey, guess what? Over the next five years on your lunch breaks, you know, in your union, Rather than sitting around, you're going to be flying drones and putting on VR goggles because you're going to be guiding other things or people through processes moving forward, right? Now you've taken the fear out of it. You've created the lifelong learning aspect of it. So that's, that's kind of, I'll see one article and, you know, I have some neurodiversity as well. My brain is like on fire sometimes and can go in so many directions at once. With, I, I think I have more like restless brain syndrome as I've started looking at things versus ADD. So I can like acutely focus on multiple paths at once versus be fumbling with multiple paths at once. And so it's, it's very, um, it's very interesting to map these things out and try to come to some conclusions. So I'll, so I'll, I'll not say too much more on that topic. 
in your in all your research, how much of our lives in you know twenty thirty and beyond twenty thirty to twenty fifty, how much of our lives are going to be spent in some alternate reality where we're using virtual? Like you were just giving an example of being plugged into some sort of virtual reality or leveraging yeah, augmented yeah. reality and all that kind of stuff. What are you reading around that? Yeah, so I finished Ready Player Two recently. There's your kind of Hollywood aspect of it, very unfairly reviewed. So there's kind of your next stage I'm beyond the oasis. On it. I have it. I just have. Yeah. It. Her, I think, is going to come sooner. We have CES this week. Last year um, was uh, the announcement of the first personal digital assistant. So you know, it was a horrible. I wouldn't say failure, but you know, just watch some of the the videos. I believe Samsung did it towards the end of CES, but. You know, the concept of a personal digital assistant is right around the corner. You look at all the acquisitions from Apple and, and things like that. You're, you're seeing these low-powered AI chips. You know, there's huge R&D gobble up by, by Apple because they're, they're, they're so, um, I don't know, in the front and center of a lot of these things. I'm sure Google's developing a lot of this in the back end for their, for their capabilities. But we are very close to PDA technology and XR, any form of altering or augmenting or whatever reality um, is, is progressing rapidly. I had a lot of friends in the Vancouver marketplace, which is kind of the, I don't know, it's like the hotbed of VR development right now. Um, and you know, it's vicinity to Alaska. We have a lot of cross pollination and, and a lot of discussions in my old career with people in the, in the VR space, XR space, whatever. And I think it's going to be humongous, right? So I hate to bring the focus back to mental health a lot, you know, but I believe that the escape from reality is going to be the driver versus like bliss. It's going to be rather rather than a slow push towards something better. If we don't do better, is what I what I believe. We're going to have a rapid push towards uh, mental health escape within online worlds. I mean, if, if you look at a lot of the articles and where they're trending, like HR departments have massively adopted AI because humans are willing to talk about these problems up front with AI over humans due to the, you know, the shame and guilt that comes with a lot of things that happen when you have a mental health breakdown. And so I think there's this 10 weeks and 10 years is happening very, very quickly in the mental health space. And I believe that is going to influence the XR and the PDA space. But, you know, I've got about five, six minute article or scripts on each of those that I've completed. I'd love to review those with you. The animation is it's a thousand bucks a minute to draw that stuff out. So um, we're, we're finalizing eight of our, uh, in fact, I think we published our first after school today or tomorrow. That's the kind of the introduction to kind of draw the crowds in and get the, um, get the feedback uh, loop inserted. But yeah, I've, I've had to shuffle my stuff around guys. Uh, we originally started off with a very like, what is AI and let's move in slowly and what's machine learning? You know, how do you teach a younger, when I say younger, remember there's so many adults that have zero uh, exposure to these, to these, you know, technical right. literacy elements. And that's another piece. I'm, that's, it's, I'm not trying to downplay intelligence. I'm just saying, I believe the nine to 13 space is maturing into a world where their careers will directly impact us. And the scarcity mindset that I have is we won't have much longer than maybe a decade after that for them to make some impact before some form of AI dominance. I mean, gosh, it's hard because I would have said 30 years ago last year, and now with Xi Jinping and everything, and you know the focus of national security in the major global superpowers 
is AI dominance within the next year. To, to take the upper hold in AI dominance in the next year and then move from there throughout the decade. And so I, I'm not trying to be, you know, some savior. I'm not trying to, you know, well, look at my Twitter handle, right? Why, my, my friends got me on Twitter because I love to sprinkle, they call it sprinkle information over people, right? See what they do. I was notorious for hitting a whiteboard and taking four times as long than was necessary for a pre-sale cycle because I like to walk <laughs> through all the different all the different aspects of what we could do. And so people started calling me info sprinkles. And so what I, what I wanted to do in a new career was as utopian as possible, truly utopian, not utopian, EU, spell it and look at the differences between, um, between those concepts, take a utopian um, element to this. And, and again, I hate to loop back, my brain works so weird, but the, the why guy and all the mythology was brought in. I started talking about it, never finished. The, the kids, the kids couldn't accept that humans were going to solve these things on their own. So that was the other big conclusion that came out of that room that I was talking about. They kept going to superheroes, right? And that's why you have this mismatch. You know, they're just a mashup of all these different mythical creatures that are, you know, kind of adapted into modern society. Right. So you got samurai, cyborg spirits, you know, reincarnated spirits with human flesh that have more cybernetic parts than than human. And and that was kind of the the focus of the young minds was we're gonna need something really big to help us and 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 step in, right? So yeah. Interesting. A quick side note, we have a lot of uh listeners that are tech evangelists, right? And for the, those of y'all that don't know that about Curtis already, um, he used to do what you all do. So now he's shifted into another career. Oh. Yeah, it was a, one of my favorite parts of the job was going to technical advisory boards. And that's why I embraced this so heavily when the kids were talking about it is to sit and talk about a company's future and how technology could possibly be used. Dell was my favorite because there was a there was generally a humanitarian approach to most things, you know, um, not that you know Brocade and Cisco and VMware and all the other PTABs that I participated in didn't have that, but Dell seemed to be there first. The care and kindness before care and kindness was cool, um, you know, half a dozen years ago was already there. And to look at the rejection of how technology, VX Rail was the last thing that I really worked on heavily because, um, you know, the interest there was around a heavily composable infrastructure, right, that you could push out. I, I think about the Alaskan marketplace and the 5G rollout that our ISPs are doing here perfect ruggedized edge-based rollout, you know? And so that's always been my, my love is to be able to listen to somebody in the room. Half the time I stop paying attention halfway through and my brain can just see that technology and go, whoa, where does that belong? And, and I was the asshole in the room that was constantly dominating the conversation with ethics. Why? What about this? This isn't right for the customer, you know? And you thrive in those types of environments. People like you to be the a-hole the one bringing up all the problems, right? They're, they pull you aside in the hallway and want to listen to more. And you're, you just have to focus on you're here to solve problems, not to complain or, or bitch about them. Yeah. Awesome, man. Um, as per usual, uh, the last time we talked, there's so much that you touched on that I, I want to dive into and get everyone's thoughts, are, thoughts on. And something we've never talked about on the show is universal basic income. And oh, man. I don't want to lead us into into really maybe the a potentially political side of this 
But um, when you look into the future and the future of work um, and, and all that kind of stuff or the future of, uh, I don't know, society, is that something that is that you think is needed, is validated yeah. based on what you're reading and seeing? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. And I'm going to try to keep all politics out of it, you know, considering especially today. Um, I was drawn to the concept of UBI. You know, my first career was in social work, um, you know, juvenile justice, uh, substance abuse for children, things like that. Transitioned into technology um, and with a, with a bachelor's in technology with a focus in social services. So I have a custom made BT degree around exactly where I'm taking my career back away from technology more into social science. So to answer your question in a couple ways, education wise, Every course I've taken ends with a module on what they just call basic income or future of employment, you know, whatever. I highly encourage everybody to take the four-hour AI for everyone on Coursera. Andrew Ying is just incredible. Um, great, uh, great exposure there if you want to kind of fast forward to the end and see how AI people, if you will, <laughs> view uh, basic income. They view it very mechanically, very, you know, the human element doesn't seep in. So um, coming from a background in social services and social work and, and myself growing up in pretty, um, yeah, let's not go there today, but I know poverty. Um, I just see the, uh, I see the social impacts as massive. So if you go to www.palmerprojectak.com, you'll see the foundation that uh, I am aspiring to stand up. All it is is a landing page right now. Um, I have been paying several of my employees, not sorry, contractors, those that didn't want to be bound by that um, unemotional contractor status, wanted to partner more. Um, we basically, uh, several of them through the last uh, six months uh, have been having huge life challenges. I don't want to go into, into all that, but in order to support them, most of these challenges, you can imagine how the art community has been affected by by the, uh, by the pandemic, most of these challenges were financial. They were mental health leading from financial. So the key people that I was working with, I just asked a simple question. Could I slide a thousand dollars a month underneath you for childcare, for food, for whatever, what you're doing for my project is so valuable. Um, I would gladly provide a safety net underneath you so that you could better focus. So that was kind of my first experiment. I reached out to someone who does a lot of advising for Andrew Yang. Um, he provided a service where you can just pay for people's mentorship over, forget exactly the name of the, the online service, spent an hour or so with him, talked about what I would do with the Palmer project. And I can hide the fact that it's UBI. I can, you know, say I paid him a thousand dollars a month for some contract, but I basically, uh, all I asked of them was a 15 minute interview by the time we were done for these, these one of them was a family member. Um, and so I have a little bit of personal experience with providing a safety net, you know, underneath people. So from an education aspect, um, very widely uh, discussed, you know, when you get away from the politics of it, highly suggest looking at it from that angle. Um, from the personal aspect, uh, very gratifying. It's very, it was, it's, it's very, um, how do I put it? It kept stability within my creative um within my creative group as well, letting people know that there's a safety net there. Very, uh, very mutually beneficial to both sides. And it allowed uh, a lot of them to, to gain a lot of creativity. Uh, one of them specifically said, I, I can't work for nothing. And I said, well, that's not what, you know, educating them on what UBI is, 
was a little different, but one of them basically just said, okay, the core focus at UBI is for people to be able to have enough safety underneath them to be able to pursue their passions or pursue new careers, pursue education. Nobody lives on $1,000 a month. Mostly nobody uh, can or will live on that, um, but it can provide huge advantage to a disadvantaged population to be able to lift themselves up educationally, mental health and motivationally, right, was the focus where, where I was at. So I'm going to ramble on more and more. Any specific well, questions? You want me to go deeper? It's actually interesting that that this is being brought up because in I I had pinned this article for actually it looks like around the Christmas time where we were trying to get out our our final podcast of the year and we didn't get to <laughs> it. Uh, but it's interesting because I'm assuming you know who Andrew Yang is. Uh, of course, maybe, yeah. So he's he's I'm running for engaged. mayor of of New York City, and he's been running for, or he he has been a presidential candidate in the past. So it's interesting that the news is is basically that he's running for mayor of New York City. I don't know if he had any other political involvement before, not when he tried to run for president, but it, it, he's definitely still working down that path, and he's a huge proponent. Uh, or champion of yeah. UBI. So that that was an interesting little tidbit that I was going back in past show notes as you were going through this, being like, man, I feel like this uh, this has been brought up before with Andrew Yang. And so that was the... I don't bring any of my Yang gang to your guys' show, right? So uh, <laughs> all the... I have, I have two sides of Twitter, right? I have uh, following the Yang gang and supporting Humanity Forward. Guys, you know, I'm, my, my aspiration is after these next couple months of marketing, I didn't want to pay Twitter and Facebook gobs of money to send people spam. So I'm just doing huge giveaways uh, around kind of retro modded console, trying to build interest in the brand and what we're doing. Um, and I, I don't know, I got to say it's, uh, you know, the UBI element, I didn't want to bring to your guys' show. Nobody wants politics. It's so tied though. Like I can't tell you how many drafts I should start reading my draft tweets. <laughs> uh, how many drafts I've typed up and said, no, I respect what these guys are doing, what their audience needs, and politics doesn't need to be a part of that. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Andrew Yang's ideas and being a part of the Yang gang uh, and being a part of that, that idea of math, make America think harder, we've got to get minds together, um, is just hugely alluring to me. And that man personally gave me the confidence to be vocal today. Why do I not want to be here? Uh, in some ways, because uh, people will be listening and listen to this opinionated dude and what he's trying to do. I'm really just trying to write a book and provide income for my family in the end. But I've got a lot of passions that I cannot ignore. They eat away at me. I've heard it in Tyler's voice and a couple of your guys' voice when these things start to get into really dystopian, you know, the oh, throw yeah. your hands up. And I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this right now. I... Products. <laughs> Acid in your voice. Once, once Apple releases. Yeah major oh, AI on the world and Siri takes over, we'll know where it is. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, but at least your packaging will be nice. <laughs> Don't forget to keep your AI box, people. <laughs> How's that for bringing it full circle? <laughs> awesome. Oh my goodness. Uh, we should we should do some lightning round opinions on stuff. This is man, you you go so deep on so much stuff, especially in the yeah. AI realm. Like we're gonna we gotta have another another talk and actually get into that because I think it's really cool. But I actually just want to hear your opinions on some of the headlines that I saw this morning. Uh, one one that hopped out, and this is total non sequitur. We're just like hot dropping AI and and social communication, all that goodness. Um, 
Uh, I saw that uh, Trump actually signed an executive order banning transactions through eight different Chinese apps, but the the ones obviously the big hitters, Alipay, WeChat Pay, and QQ, um, that has a pretty profound impact on international payment transactions. I mean, obviously, it's huge business, right? This will be a boom likely for the PayPal's, the Venmo's of the world, right? Um, what, do you, what do you think? Only it were easy to transact in Bitcoin, right, Tyler? Bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bitcoin, ties, Bitcoin ties into that really closely. Like yeah. universal currency and universal compute languages are, or language are two requirements really for AGI to run well. When you get away yeah. from the hardware requirements, the quantum computing, the you know, sub millisecond near real time, you know, network fabric framework. If you're going to communicate distributed in a grid or an engine style, you're going to need to have, you know, that. And then obviously the algorithms and the data, right? But sorry, let me say again. So AGI is artificial yeah. general intelligence. You mentioned that a little bit earlier. That's correct. Just want to make yeah. sure the audience. Sorry. Follows. A lot of people no, call it, a lot of people call it ASI as well, artificial super intelligence or something okay. of that nature. And, and hence, my apprehension of getting on the phone and talking about a lot of this stuff sometimes because just saying the word AGI nonchalantly will set yeah. certain people who work in data science off. They'll be like, that's a hundred years out and you're just trying to fill people's heads with stuff. And then, uh, yeah, you know, three weeks or whatever, three months ago, Microsoft announced an entire data center dedicated to just cracking AGI this decade. So it's like, wow. uh, wow. I don't know. I'm going to bed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. all their assets. I the bet we're moving faster than dedicated. some of those folks are thinking. Yeah. No, I didn't you're, know that. You're spot on. That, that's actually a really good point too. Thinking about, um, obviously we were talking about crypto on Monday and uh, I think we're going to talk about crypto a lot more this week too, because it's in the news. It's interesting. And we've got some fun stuff to say about it, but you, you talk yeah. about that. There are a lot of options for um, democratizing how, payments are going to be sent around in the crypto space. Yeah, obviously, Bitcoin is one of yeah. those things, as is Ethereum. Ethereum, those are the, some of the biggest players. XRP is in the news. Ripple, that XRP is Ripple, um, because it sort of was started as a, an interbank transaction platform. Um, <clears throat> there, there are, I think there's going to be a, a, a thinning of the field that comes down to the most useful cryptocurrencies. Uh, I have a feeling that some of the biggest names are going to continue to be the most relevant. But I, I also, there, there's no reason that some of the more elegant transaction-based sort of networks aren't going to become particularly useful related to AI and some of the stuff that's going to be happening in that space as well. So that's, that's a really interesting linkage there. I think it's going to be one of the last scrambles that we do when you when you when you bring things together, if you will, when a single AGI, you know, in our story, you know, uh, again, lights go out, mass distributed cyber security event, uh, lights go out, humans realize how close they can be to hurting each other. World wakes up, they focus a group. I haven't decided all the professions and how that group comes together to, you know, uh, ethically curate the, the data lake and, and, and start the AGI, turn it into gateway mode, right? Get it, get it thinking, get it independent, get it answering the majority of our questions, you know, uh, get it in front of the judges, get it in front of, you know, all the things that are so uh, contentious these days, right? So, you know, an AI should be displaying options to a judge based on, you know, precedence and all these things. We should be, and again, you touch politics. Oh my God, stacking the courts and all this kind of stuff. I predict in 10 years, stack the courts, shut the hell up. 
focus your money inside of a think tank and get an AI stood up that basically sits beside all paralegals and judges, gathers the information, (laughs) puts it in front of the humans and say, based on precedent, you're racist if you do this. You're (laughs) this, this. Like, guess what, judges? You don't hold all the power anymore. You're there to make great informed decisions with, by the way, explainable AI, baby. That's why I push Watson so much. I love Watson media and what, you know, it's debatable. I love it's debatable. I love the idea of AI curating all the questions, then giving it to the debaters saying, you don't get to say what humans say and how they feel. Here's the curated data about how they actually feel. We took all the craziness out, you know, and then you guys, you know, argue it on this level. I went off on a trail there. I'm sorry. Well, no, that, but that was a fun trail. You got real excited. I like I that. I got to know, can we fix all of this by forming a union? <laughs> are, you t- are you talking about the Google employee union? <laughs> I am. <laughs> because Google definitely, the union, I think, has a lot of roots into like, just the, I don't know, they they have a lot of idealistic people that work at Google, right? And so like, they're always trying to push very specific agendas. Like they didn't want Google to work on military projects and stuff like that. So uh, they're forming a union, I suppose, uh, in order to try and solve probably work-related issues as well as work direction. Let's just have a world union and the union fights, uh, you know, against the the AI overlords of the future. Well, um, you know, I, I always give away the ending of, of, uh, of my graphic novels um, because, uh, you know, it's the, the social dilemma uh, brought things to front and center. Um, but yeah, the, um, you know, the, the concept around Gaia's seed outside of the earth needing repaired and an AGI to take over, humans couldn't make decisions necessary to go through the repair process, you know, relocating all humans, creating new mega cities, getting them away from the equator, average temperatures are 110, all that kind of fun Hollywood stuff. But when you, when you pull back from a lot of that, you know, the, the focus that the book has is really programming the humanity algorithm, right? So when Agnes, artificial general intelligence, neural earth system, when Agnes comes live, these scientists, they're, well, these, these humans that are helping to program, that's one of the other problems is scientists love to stay way in their domains and not look outside of, you know, what they're doing. AI should be focusing with neurology at every point of, of the next, you know, couple decades. Um, but the focus is that these, uh, these morals drift up into the AI system. So when humanity comes together and says, how should we create an AGI? We've all started them. Some have created cyber attacks and close to global world war. How do we program these? And it all comes back to, we don't know how to define humanity yet because one culture believes something is inhumane and the other doesn't. So we need a baseline for all humans. You got to get rid of all religion and race and all those types of things. And again, Agnes is not going to be, <laughs> my goal in volume one was for her to appear the villain. Where I, well, oh my God, she transplanted you know, a hundred million or billions of people and raised cities down and, you know, built all these forests to try to oxygenate the earth and all these types of concepts, right? That's what a, that's what a benevolent dictator would have to do, or even a protector God, depending on if you look at those two modes of AI, right? That's what they have to do. Now, the key of the story, the bad guy is that she can't attain certain human emotions, Right. So you, you talk to most AI uh, scientists and, you know, Hawking and all that. Don't let, you know, don't let robots feel. Well, obviously, we let them do that. And neurons travel very slow compared to optical circuits. And so when you set up a grid-based 
mind, it's going to be able to experience emotions much more the amplification and the quickness of those emotions, things we can't define. We go to the top level of rage or, you know, anger turns into rage, turns into, you know, whatever. Um, the machines, if you will, will be able to feel deeper and harder, but they can't feel certain things that humans feel. And so where does the existential threat come from? Agnes copies herself. No, no. Copies herself and puts that copy on a special project to understand human emotions. And she gives marks the access to the forbidden data that was curated out when they created the humanity algorithm. What is the forbidden data? It's the early 20th century or 21st century social media data, right? Everybody was pulled off. It was forbidden. And so all this mental health comes into the algorithm, these mental health issues, and it corrupts. Think of uh, Agent Smith in the Matrix or whatever, right? It corrupts the, the opposing AI, right? Hmm. So... I don't know how I completely got off topic there. No, it's fine. And I well, have another comment just to make real quick on the, the Alphabet Workers Union, just from what I know so far. But um, are, are you publishing, just to stay with what your thought was there, are you publishing anything anywhere yeah. where people can go and, and, and start consuming? Yeah, and I know- Gumroad. Okay. Gumroad is where we focus. Yeah, we have a Gumroad store. If you just Google buy Frostbridge Studios and Gumroad, we put a lot of free stuff out. Really right now it's focusing on content and getting known and heard. So we're producing a lot of free projects, um, you know, educational type of things. We just released the neurodiverse fan art book. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, basically collaborating with people that have neurodiversity influence in their life and, and a common bond together is around fan art. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where we focus and we're self-publishing. I went through the, (laughs) can you imagine doing this pitch to people? You know, Aaron, it's, it's been a long (laughs) road, but in the middle of a pandemic when everybody, Dude, when everybody's rewriting history, can you imagine that all the different editors and people I've gone to and they're like, you're doing what? And the whole industry is rebooting right now. Really, the way that you write is pre-2020 and post. And so all these workshops, oh my God, when I went to this children's workshop, I'm sitting there with 50 people that have got to be the young, I'm youngest by far at 38. And I swear to God, the average age is 70 writing children's books in this workshop. Can I ask real quick? I'm sorry. And maybe I just missed it. When you say the industry is rebooting, do you mean like the children's education industry, the creative industry? I mean, writing in general. Okay. Writing is rebooting. I'm just saying writing in general, the focus. You have pre-2020 stories and post-2020 stories is what you said, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I, you would think it's like, okay, well you did a movie pre 2020. So it's still germane. A lot of people were in midstream production on a lot of different projects. Um, and they just basically modified them, canceled them or moved on. They said the world's maybe not going to want to read this so much anymore. And so I That's predict so in 2021, we are going to see a litany of people writing in a new mindset, maybe doing a lot of what I'm talking about today and future casting because they're just unsure of where things go next and how we adapt. And we see it all the time in articles and Time Mag. What's the new normal? Will you be working from home? Wait for literature, nonfiction, fiction. It'll, it'll impact both, obviously. You know, one, you can't rewrite history and lie. Uh, but, but it's going to it's gonna, it's gonna influence a lot of what we do. And so, yes, from a publishing perspective, I, I just went the self-publishing route. You know, um, obviously, when you're putting all your resources in a basket and and, uh, you know, praying it works. That doesn't mean I wouldn't instantly hop over to a, a Netflix or something to, to buy out a project or collaborate. Um, but yeah, it's kind of self-published right now. 
Awesome. Um, okay. So let me jump back to the Alphabet okay. Workers Union real quick. Uh, a couple of things that I know so far, uh, it looks like there are over 400 members so far. They have not yet published wow. a list of demands. Um, if you're going to be part of the union, you're going to commit 1% of your salary, right, at Google. And they, they describe themselves as, as a democratic organization, it wants to hear from new members before deciding on major initiatives, but organizers have hinted that they're not stopping at pay disparity. And then, quote, our goal with the union is to ensure that tech companies use their technology to make the world a better place, says yeah. Alan Morales, yeah. a Google engineer and AWU organizer. So Wait, is there something else I, I found here is that they have some involvement, and, and I really, candidly, I know nothing about unions, um, but there is a very large organization called the CWA, uh, which is the Communication Workers of America. It was started, I guess, uh, informed by telecom workers, but has since uh, branched out into uh, game developers and, and more recently, so tech employees is, is what it's talking about. And so they have over 700,000 members. And the wow. Google Union is affiliated with the CWA's campaign to organize digital employees, which I guess is a broader effort that is going on in this space. So it uh, looks like Google employees organized in secret for almost a year before deciding to go public and support uh, with the support of the CWA. So it's a interesting little sort of developing piece that we see here with this that is, it's less focused on Google, I guess, and more so just started by Google employees with things that they can affect, but trying to affect a broader uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, message or just have a broader impact is what it looks like. Yeah, unions is an interesting one. You've, you've got our new president talking a lot about it, and you've got a lot of you know, labor reform that needs to happen. And, and you know, the IBW is traditionally what, I, what I've seen in like ISPs or, or big shops uh, that, that where, where IT falls under union. It tends to be the IBW, and, and they treat their employees really, really well. And, you know, um, I'm, not a, I'm not a master of unions and understanding how they work and all that, but I've got several family members in them. And I know that through these tough times, they've been assured they're going to be taken care of. And I used to be a little more down on unions, for sure. Um, uh, but I don't know anymore. Um, I'm not for federal jobs guarantees and wasted productivity moving forward, however. And that's my biggest challenge with unions is, you know, you lose the fire sometimes. And yeah, so that, that's where my thoughts are. I think from a humanitarian perspective, we need to push forward with more protection rights. A lot of, you know, that Senate suite swings, uh, you could see a lot of four years of workers' rights being one of the top focuses to trickle down onto other issues. So yeah, it's a, it's a big deal for them to do that in silence for a year is huge. Yeah, a hundred percent. I, uh, I don't know where I stand. I've, I've just never given unions a lot of thought. Uh, they really haven't been, uh, a big force. I think really in any of our lifetimes compared to what they were maybe, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's crazy to see them coming. Uh, one thing I will say is that we need to unionize in the shutting down of this episode. Because <laughs> yes. wrong. Um, Curtis, uh, any final thoughts before we close it? No. Um, just thank you guys for having me on and patience. Maybe have a little understanding of where I come at from all these different articles. And 
you know, I crawled under a rock about 18 months ago and probably outside of my family only communicated with about 12, maybe half a dozen people from my old life, just trying to focus on recovery and focus on these projects. And boy, uh, I did better than I thought. I tend to get spun up and just interrupt everybody. And, and just, just, you know, when I get a chance to like take these ideas and push them out. So I want to thank you guys for the forum and Thank you for, you know, not taking some of the topics that I forward along too seriously. I'm just trying to bring awareness, not say this is how things are going to be. I always worry about that dystopian edge to things rather than an educational element. So thank you. Uh, dude, you don't come across that way at all. It, it just seems informational. It doesn't seem like, you know, chicken little skies falling kind of a situation or, you know, <laughs> people wake up, you know, no one's paying attention. It doesn't feel like that at all. So don't worry about it. Don't stress about awesome. it. Yep. No worries. Well, I, I love the community. It's a, it's a safe space with us. Uh, we enjoy having you on. We enjoy your involvement. We appreciate everything you do. And we appreciate all of you who are taking the time to listen to this. Please share, like, rate, appreciate all of that. Every little bit helps. Thank you very much. It's been a very interesting episode, very informative. I've, I've got lots of thoughts I'm going to be having after this episode now. So thank you, Curtis, for the thoughts. <laughs> thank you for joining. And everyone have a great rest of your day. Later. Later. Later.